0: Hello, and welcome to City Break St. Petersburg, episode 10, an episode called St. Petersburg in Soviet Times, in which I want to have a look at how everything, but really everything, changed with the revolution of 1917, and a little bit at what life was like in the Soviet city, which St. Petersburg, brackets, Leningrad, became. To start with, then, just a quote from somebody who was there at the time. One Lancelot Lawson, who had lived in Russia for many years pre-Revolution, left, I think, and returned in 1924 and wrote the following about what he noticed. In Leningrad, as in all Russian towns, the streets have been renamed. The Nevsky has become the October 25th prospect, the date of the Bolshevik Revolution. Other streets are named after famous revolutionaries. One street, for example, in memory of the man who assassinated Alexander II a second after Rosa Luxembourg, and a third after Robespierre. Then there is the street of young proletarians, a place of communards, a street of brotherly love, and a bridge of freedom. If one went only by the names of many of the streets, one might well imagine one was strolling in the highways of paradise itself. So I'm proposing to give a very brief flit through the history of the period, followed by some more information on three places which you can visit in the city today if you want to learn more about the Soviet era. And then I'm going to talk about the life of one person, the poet Anna Akhmatova, whose troubles and problems in that period really seemed to me to epitomise a lot of what life was like in the Soviet era. And then finally, for a little bit of fun, I'm going to end up with two or three places where you can find and experience for yourself a few traces of Soviet life in St Petersburg today queue up for a cafe that sells only doughnuts, um, play some tabletop ice hockey, that sort of thing. Okay, so to start then, a very brief uh, little bit of history, introduced by a couple of quotes from Geoffrey Hosking, the author of a very handy little book called Russian History, a very short introduction, in which he writes the following, quote, The 1917 revolution looks like a complete break with Russia's past. Yet before long, the main features of that past had reappeared. Empire, centralization, a highly authoritarian state, a yawning gap between rulers and people. I think for almost all of us it's pretty true that if you go and spend a little bit of time in any one of these splendid St Petersburg palaces, it's pretty clear that the revolution or some sort of revolution really did need to happen. But then if you look back on the Soviet period and what you know about that, you can't help wondering whether they hadn't gone from the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. And uh, this is how Geoffrey Hoskill explains that, It was tragic that in fighting for land, freedom and self-government, Russians delivered themselves into the hands of an even more oppressive regime. But whatever you think of the various systems before, during and after, you can't deny the speed of the operation. Just even looking at the way that the name of the city changed, so of course it had been St. Petersburg ever since Peter founded it, during the revolution, it became known as Petrograd, and then post revolution, it was decided that Moscow would be redesignated the capital. I think they wanted to drop some of the imperial connotations with St. Petersburg, and at the same time, St. Petersburg was renamed and became then Leningrad. And the early years, right through the 20s really, were marked by very harsh daily conditions for almost everybody terrible food and fuel shortages, poverty. Very hard times indeed. In the 1930s, things picked up at least economically a little bit. There was a big development campaign with a new emphasis on research and public works projects. So, for example, some of the fancy new metro stations were built. But this period when things possibly looked as if they might get a little bit better were also marked by the rise of kirov a politician who initially had been a supporter of stalin but who became so popular that stalin in the end thought that he would be a rival and had him shot and that was really the beginning of the era of great purges especially against intellectuals for example 50 curators working in the hermitage were imprisoned and there were waves of arrests and exiles and executions In wartime, 1941, of course, what most people know most about Leningrad at that period is the siege and the terrible hunger. That's going to be the topic of the next episode. So I'm going to gloss over it here a little bit and move on to the post-war period, an era often known as the Leningrad Affair, in which there were more purges. Stalin making it very clear which young politicians and which artists he didn't trust or didn't like. But at the same time, the city on the quiet, remained a bit of a centre of dissent, so there was a place where there was an underground music scene, for example, and where some artists and writers were indeed able to work, at least in secret, and just show their work to each other. But really, it wasn't until the 1980s, under the stewardship of Mikhail Gorbachev, that a new culture began to be seen. Words like glasnost, which means openness, and perestroika, which was a name for political reform, began to be on people's lips, and eventually things began to open up. In 1991, there was a referendum, and the decision was to change the name of the city back to its original, St. Petersburg. So that was very much the end of the Leningrad era, and the end of communism as it had been known. Not immediately a good thing, because there was terrible unrest, gangs took over, capitalists moved in, often taking advantage of the great change and really reaching out in all directions and grabbing money and power. Again, proof that the end of oppression of one sort didn't necessarily mean that oppression of a different sort wasn't perhaps going to follow. So, so much for the potted history. The first of the three places that I've picked out that you can visit today in St. Petersburg, and where you can learn really quite a lot about the Soviet era, is, in fact, the Trebetsky Bastion Prison which, of course, had been a much feared prison throughout the life of the city. It was the place where Peter the Great's son Alexei was tortured to death. It was also the place where the Decembrists were imprisoned and, in some cases, executed after their attempted uprising in 1825. And right through the 19th century, it was the place where enemies of the imperial regime were imprisoned, all kinds of people, including, for example, the writer Dostoevsky. But in 1917, of course, a complete change came along. So it was no longer going to be a prison for those people taken in by the Tsarist regime. From February 1917, after the first uprising, it was going to be a prison for the new enemies of the new regime. The jailers who had been working there were all dismissed, and the revolutionaries appointed their own guards. The prison today is a museum, and here's an extract from its guidebook which explains what happened in the October Revolution. On the night of the 25th, 26th of October, 18 ministers of the toppled Provisional Government were sent to the Trebetsky Bastion Prison. On the following day, by order of the Provisional Revolutionary Committee, eight socialist ministers were released. On the 29th of October, over 300 rebels of the anti-Bolshevik Junker Mutiny were brought to peter and paul fortress so the revolution is very much using it as a prison for anybody of whom they disapproved and deciding in some cases that if you were seen to be socialist enough you could be released again it really was all change and almost overnight and here's a description from the guidebook again about how conditions changed at this period quote the cells intended for solitary confinement now housed over 20 inmates the cells, infested by lice and bedbugs, were virtually unheated, and even at night the dim light from the lamps disturbed the inmate's sleep. At seven o'clock the reveille sounded, and we would get some boiling water, a little sugar, and a quarter of a pound of bread for the day. At noon we would dine on hot water, with floating threads of cabbage leaves and a morsel of meat. At four o'clock we were given tea, that is, hot water, and at seven p.m. some more hot water for supper, said Pitirim Sorokin describing the prison meals under the new regime. In fact, the prison was only run by the Bolsheviks for a few years. It it shut down in 1924. But we know that during that time, at least a 100 people were shot by firing squad. And so it is a place where you can learn something about what life was like in St. Petersburg in those first few post-revolutionary years. A second museum to visit, which will tell you lots and lots about this, is the State Museum of Political History of Russia. The building itself is interesting because it was the place where the Bolsheviks set up their headquarters. We know that Lenin gave a speech from the balcony of the building and the highlight of the visit to the place today is the fact that you can look round Lenin's office, the office that he used during 1917 when he was working on the February and October revolutions and they've left it pretty much unchanged. So you can go in there and look round and just imagine him at work. But much more than that, it is an actual history museum. It tells the story of Russia from 1812 onwards. The first three rooms cover 1812 to 1900, but then the remaining nine rooms are really all about the Soviet period. And it's absolutely chock full of pictures and memorabilia, quotes in big letters on the wall, film footage and explanations. And you really can learn masses there. I think you could spend the day there, actually, if you feel you've got plenty of time to spare. Um, So I'll just take you through roughly the things that are covered there and read out one or two quotes that struck me as I was going round. So room number four is actually about the February 1917 revolution and the abdication of the Tsar. Room number five covers the October revolution and transfer of power to the Soviets. And then in room six, you've got the period from 1930 onwards, which is very interesting on the collective farms that sprang up. You can see The Bolsheviks really wanting to take over basically anything that made a profit, farms in the countryside, companies in the cities. And it's well illustrated with particular examples. So you learn in that room, for example, about a family called the, see if I can pronounce it, Kropodoshikov family, who ran a glove and boot company in St. Petersburg, which was taken over by communists and they were sent into exile. They tried to come back to the city and rebuild their company and the result of that was that one of them was shot, another one was imprisoned and in fact died in prison and a third brother was sent to the concentration camp for 10 years. So they lost everything they'd built up and worked for and paid for it with their lives. Room 7 is all about the period when the politician Kirov, the rival to Stalin, was shot and the ensuing cleansing, in inverted commas, of the city of Leningrad in which it's believed over 11,000 people were either imprisoned or exiled. And again, there are personal stories there. So they tell the story, for example, of a journalist called Alexei Kirillov, who was exiled and his family followed him. And he was so distraught and felt that they would never have a decent life where they were forced to live. So he shot himself because he knew that without him, they would be allowed to return to Leningrad. Room 8 talks about the great terror years of 1937 and thirty-eight, when thousands of people were being sent to the gulags every day. Room 9 deals with the war years, so the siege mainly, which is the subject of the next episode. And Room 10 covers the years 1953 to 1964, known as the period of, quote, the thaw. So 1953 was the year in which Stalin died. And after that, things did loosen up a little bit there was a bit more of a return, for example, to art and theatre. These people were no longer totally despised. They were still censored, but there was some element of freedom. I saw a quote in that room by a writer called V.P. Arksinov, in which he said the following, I suddenly opened a newspaper and saw the advertisement of the arrival of Western artists, ballet on ice, Gershwin's opera, it seemed that all the things that had previously been vulgarised and crushed would become better and better, that freedom was on its way. The penultimate room covers the years 1964 to 82. That was very interesting. A lot of it was about the invasion of Prague by Russian troops and tanks in 1968. There was an extract from a Russian newspaper in which they patiently explained that the troops had gone, quote, for the purpose of protection of the socialist regime But there was also a display about eight human rights activists who had been caught demonstrating in favour of more freedom in Czechoslovakia. I read a statement on the wall from one of the people who looked about in his early 20s from the photograph and who wrote the following, I knew that I would not commit any criminal actions. However, I was almost sure that a criminal case against me would be initiated. I understood that for five minutes of freedom on Red Square I could pay with years of imprisonment. And the last room deals with the Gorbachev era. You can watch him making his speech in 1985, the one which gave rise to Glasnost, and you can look at a lot of other material about those heady years when Russia was freeing up a little bit. Although I noticed one of the very last displays was about the trouble that there had been in the province of Chechnya, which of course is still an ongoing issue in Russia today. So they weren't airbrushing everything out and claiming that everything is now sorted. Far from it. The third place, also a museum, which I think can tell you an awful lot about the Soviet era, is a flat in a wing of the Sheremtev Palace, which is these days a museum on the life and writing of the poet Anna Akhmatova. She lived here from just after the revolution for 30 years and it's been left pretty much as it was in that period. So looking round it you really do get a sense of what a communal flat in the Soviet era might have been like as well as learning a lot about the life of an artist and the problems that they faced. In this episode I'd like to talk a bit about her life and about the museum um, but I'm going to save some material on her actual writing for a future episode, because I want to devote an episode to literature from the Soviet era. So Anna Akmatova then. She was born in Ukraine, but she grew up near St. Petersburg in Saskozello, and as a young adult, she became very much part of the literary scene. She wrote poetry. She was pretty much a free thinker, I think. She had an open marriage with the poet Nikolai Gumilov, so both of them had other partners. They did have a son, Lev, who was born in nineteen twelve. And during this period, so pre-Revolution, they were very much part of the bohemian art scene that was existent in St. Petersburg of the day. Inspired by what they'd seen in Paris, people began to set up bars and cafes and cabarets where artists could come and sing their songs and read their poems. Here's an extract from a book called Literary St. Petersburg, which talks about one particular cafe, The Stray Dog, which was frequented quite often by Anna Akhmatova. So it writes the following, The Stray Dog became a favourite meeting place for all kinds of performers, including dancers, musicians, and of course, poets. The club was named after the misfit artists, the Stray Dogs, who could find a home there. It had a stage and a piano and many small dinner tables for guests. Akhmatova, Gumilev, that was her husband, and Mandelstam read their poems here. It goes on to explain that if you came and were willing to perform, then you could come in for free, but if you were a guest and just wanted to watch, then you had to pay a cover charge. And uh, I like this quotation. With its glamorous entertainers and reputation for decadence, the stray dog drew many rich business people who were willing to pay the high price to see the Bohemians in person. But again, that was very much end of an era, because only a few years later, after the revolution, life changed completely. Here's another quotation from Literary St. Petersburg describing the life that Anna Akhmatova lived in this flat in the Sheremtev Palace with her husband. Like most Petersburgers, they lived in a state of semi-starvation, with Akhmatova waiting in lines for rations and chopping trees and inessential furniture into firewood. Artists were persecuted. Akhmatova's husband Gumilev was arrested and in fact shot because he had threatened to join an uprising. Anna became then not just a widow in very poor circumstances but also she became a person of suspect because she had been mixing with somebody who had gone against what the communists wanted them to do. So she was banned from publishing any of her work, which of course meant that she would then have no income, and it was made known to her that Stalin himself had demanded to be kept informed of everything she wrote. During the 1930s, the Stalinist terror period, things got much, much worse. There were waves of arrests and executions. Many, many more people sent to the labour camps, where often they died because of the brutal conditions, and intellectuals like Anna Akhmatova were particularly targeted. In one of her writings, she wrote this sentence to describe how terrible it was. That was when the ones who smiled were the dead, glad to be at rest. Another terrible thing that happened was the persecution of her son, Lev. He'd wanted to go to university to study history, but he'd been rejected. This was in the early 1930s because of his social origins. In other words, who his parents were. And he spent four years doing manual labour before they were eventually persuaded to accept him into the university but he hadn't been there i don't think even a year before somebody informed on him and he was arrested this was in nineteen thirty five and this is what he himself wrote about that time at that time in leningrad students from the families of the intelligentsia and students who were bright and successful were being persecuted the history department had just been organized at the university no sooner had the first group of students been accepted than the arrests began I was one of the first. He was sent to one of the gulags. He actually spent 15 years in total in these places, and Anna Akhmatova's second husband, Punin, was also arrested and sent to a labour camp. He never came home. He died there in 1953. So while all this terrible persecution and misery was going on, she did continue to write, although, of course, she had to do it in secret. Two of her main works, that we'll come back to in a further episode, are entitled... Poem Without a Hero in which she writes about her own life from pre-revolutionary days right up to the 1940s and another long poem called Requiem in which she tried really to bear witness to the suffering that she had seen and of course endured herself. In addition to all the terrible things she suffered because of her living conditions and because of the loss of both of her husbands Anna Akhmatova also had to worry very much about the fate of her son We know that she wrote to Stalin personally, pleading with him to let him go. We know that he was sentenced to death in 1939 and sent back to St Petersburg to await the carrying out of the sentence and that while he was there, she would go and stand with hundreds of other wives and mothers in front of the prison hoping to get to the front of the queue so that she could hand over what she'd brought with her, a food parcel perhaps or some letters. Some days she would manage it, many other times she wouldn't We know from other reports that the guards at the front sometimes took goods from people even though they knew that the people for whom they were intended had already been executed. She spent in total 17 months queuing up outside this prison before she finally learnt what had happened to her son. His sentence had been commuted to five years in a Siberian gulag. And in the preface to her poem, Requiem, she describes a meeting that she had with a woman in this queue, which really led her to want to write the poem. So she writes, Standing behind me was a young woman with lips blue from the cold. Now she started out of the torpor common to us all and asked me in a whisper, everyone whispered there, Can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. I was also very struck by a description of how it was that she managed to write these long poems even knowing that if she were caught, that would be certain execution. So she did it by memorising them, and by getting friends to memorise them. And I read the description of an afternoon in her flat, when her friend, Lydia Chukovskaya, who was also a novelist, came to visit, and what they would do, being very aware that the flat would be bugged, and that anything they said would be listened to, Anna would write a few lines of her poetry on a piece of paper, and pass it to her friend and the friend would memorise it and while this was going on they kept up an ordinary conversation to keep the people listening in on them thinking that this was just an ordinary visit and when Lydia had memorised the lines they would throw the paper in the fire and burn it and Lydia would leave the building, obviously if she was ever searched she would have nothing on her and then she would go somewhere secret and write it down. Those were the lengths to which you had to go if you wanted to write something that the communist regime wouldn't approve. Anna Akhmatova lived in poverty until 1953, which was the year that Stalin died, at which point things began to relax just a little bit, the period known as the thaw. She spent, in fact, a few years after that in a house paid for by a writer's organisation. They knew that she had no money. And she had a bit of a late flowering as an author. In fact, her poetry was published in Russia itself in 1961. Which would have been unthinkable 10 years earlier and in 1965 she was awarded an honorary degree from the University of Oxford. So hers really was a life with much to teach us about what living under the Soviet regime was like. Visiting the museum as well tells you a bit of that I think because they've left the flat very much as it was so you see the little rooms and the small amount of furniture and you can imagine the bugging and the watching that was going on you can imagine the cold and the hunger remember the fact that people were forced to live more or less without firewood unless they could find small amounts out in the woods which of course everybody else was trying to do too in the early days they could resort to burning some of their furniture but obviously that wasn't something that was going to last very long you can imagine the rationing and the starvation under which they had to exist during the siege and come away, I think, really quite a little bit wiser about what life was like in that era. So, moving on to places you can see still in the city today with reminders of the Soviet era. Definitely want to mention the metro stations. A lot of them were built in the 1950s. The communists went through a phase of having built what they called palaces for the people, so fancy public monuments that were owned by everybody. So examples of that would be things like the Baltiskaya station, which dates from 1955 which is decorated by statues of socialist revolutionaries from neighbouring Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania. If you look at a the guidebook, there'll be ideas of other um, Soviet metro stations. The one which struck me most was called, is called the Narviskaya station, because it's got a array of sculptures all gazing up into what appears to be empty space, until you find out that what used to be there was a statue of Stalin, but that was removed in 1956, after his death and after the takeover by Khrushchev, when he began to denounce Stalin. And on the subject of stations, if you go to Finland Station, you can see the train in which Lenin came back to St Petersburg when he was going to organise the revolution, so his arrival in 1917. You can see the train, you can picture him making a speech from the top of an armoured car and you can go outside into the square and see a statue of him. On a lighter note, if you want to experience a little bit of Soviet culture, then try visiting something called the Museum of Soviet Arcade Games, where you can find over 50 working arcade games from the 1970s and 80s and In return for your entrance fee, get a handful of old Kopec coins so that you can play the machines. And then you can have a go at Moskoy Boy, which is the Russian for battleships. Or you can play tabletop ice hockey. Or you can play a baffling game called Repka, where you have to pull off various tricks. And if you're going to be the winner, you're the person who manages to pull a giant radish out of the ground. And while you're thinking how weird and strange this is, if you look round, you will see some nostalgic older Russians either playing or watching other people having a go and reminiscing. And to finish, I have a couple of recommendations for places where you can eat Soviet-style. Quite well-known these days is the Donut Café, which is at the address 25 Bolshea Konyushenea Street, which is actually a turning-off the Nevsky prospect, so quite easy to find. It opened in 1958, an era during which donuts were one of the very few forms of fast food available, and it's been there ever since. It happened to be quite near where we stayed, so we saw it several times with massive queues out of the doorway. Queues that did seem to be moving along, but queues nevertheless. And my husband pointed out that presumably that was part of the Soviet experience. A small grey little interior, not many seats, but I noticed that somebody on TripAdvisor wrote describing it, quote, it feels like Stalin-era Russia. And there were lots of comments about how delicious the donuts were. All you can get there is donuts and coffee. I don't think they even do tea. So it's very much you take what you get, which I guess is how it probably was. So there's an idea. And if you want to eat a bit more, then look out for one of these Soviet style restaurants. We found one actually on Nevsky Prospect called Dachniki. I think the word is related to the word Dacha, which meant sort of country cottage or holiday chalet which quite a lot of Russians had, and you very much get Dacha food there. If you go inside, again full of Russians, it's Not so many tourists. It seems to be a place where you go if you're a Russian and you want to feel some nostalgia for the Soviet era. Inside, there's an indoor barbecue and there's lots of mismatched furniture and funny little curtains made of all sorts of different fabrics, which I guess is probably the style that they're remembering that actually existed in the days when people didn't think so much about home decor. And lots of the foods are named with very dacha sort of titles. There's an actual dacha salad, which the menu told me was tomato, cucumber, radish and dill in a sauce of sour cream and mayonnaise. They did seem to scatter dill everywhere actually so if that's not your thing you might want to uh, look carefully at the menu. There was another dish actually called nostalgie which I assume is Russian for nostalgia and the English version of that menu told me that that was boiled eggs in a mayonnaise sauce. So there you go. You can find there quite a lot of very Russian-sounding dishes. Borscht, for example, which you might know is um, beetroot soup. Something called pelmeni, which is the Russian for ravioli, vegetable, chicken, etc. And a different sort of ravioli, apparently Ukrainian rather than Russian, which are called vareniki. And the ones in this restaurant were said to be filled with cottage cheese or cherry compote. Another very Russian-sounding dish was draniki, which we were told was potato pancakes with ham and mushrooms. There was actually a dish on the menu labelled in Russian and then the English translation read snack a la dacha, which was potatoes in canned meat. So think corned beef. Some nostalgic puddings, titles like grandmother's pancakes, which was said to contain sour cream and jam. And at the end of our meal, we ordered some hot drinks and along came the waiter and said, you must have sushka crackers with your drink. It is traditional. And they were a funny little almost Pringle-like things, really, that for some reason you ate at the end of a meal. There was Soviet champagne on the menu, and there was red and white port, said to hail from the Crimea. There were no fewer than seven types of vodka, and wait for it, four different types of Armenian brandy. Who knew? I'm afraid I can't report as to how authentic the experience was, But it did feel very Russian, and we were certainly surrounded by Russians who seemed to be throwing themselves into the whole thing with gusto and enthusiasm. So I recommend it to you if you're passing. So there you have it, a few bits and pieces about St. Petersburg in the Soviet era. I'm proposing in the next episode to move on to the Siege of Leningrad, which took place in the winter of between 1941 and 1942 give you some facts, read out some diary extracts by a girl who I came to think of really as the Russian Anne Frank, a girl 15, I think she was, during the year of the siege, called Lena Mukina, who wrote a diary, which is fascinating but terrible reading all at once. And then I'll also give you some information on the Victory Monument, which was built to commemorate the 900 days which, for which the siege lasted. And of course, to remember all those who lost their lives. It's totally horrifying to read that at the height of the siege, it's thought that something like a hundred thousand people a day were dying. The monument's a little way out of the city, but I found that visiting it was really an absolute must not miss, because really, when such terrible things are known to have happened, the least we can do is make sure they don't get forgotten. Okay, so so much for that for today. Then I'll bid you farewell from the Soviet era. I'd like to thank you very much for listening. Spasibo, and to wish you goodbye then in Russian, as usual, at least I think it's Russian. До свидания.